All right, we come now this morning to the preaching of the Word of God. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn this morning to Matthew chapter 24. And we're going to call upon the name of the Lord together. Just as Ryan led us in prayer earlier, we're going to ask God for help to speak to us this morning from His Word by the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to meet with God today. We want to be true disciples of Jesus who abide in His Word. And so let's ask for help. Lord, we come to you this morning and we worship you. Lord, we honor you as our God. And Lord, we honor the King at your right hand. Jesus, we sang to you this morning that we love you. And truly we do, Lord. We love you, Lord Jesus. We believe that you have all authority in heaven and on earth. And we pray today that you would use that authority to exalt your name for the good of your church. God, that you would bless us. And we ask for grace this morning. That just as you have brought us forth by the word of truth. That you would sanctify us by your truth this morning, Lord. You are our teacher, Lord Jesus, our master. And we ask, God, that you would help us to understand your word and give us hearts to obey your word. And even to tremble at your word. Lord, come. And we ask for your blessing today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this morning we're going to continue our study of eschatology, specifically the Olivet Discourse. In Matthew 24, the, the words of Jesus Christ on the final days. So if you're a visitor to Grace Community Church and you missed part one of this last week, I'll say this very briefly, that this is an area of Christian theology where there's quite a bit of disagreement between evangelical churches and evangelical brothers and sisters. That means that this is one area of Christian theology where we don't have this all figured out. Okay, And so there's a humility that needs to govern our approach to eschatology. And, that, and that's what we're going to uh, uh, lean into together this morning. Let's begin our time by reading God's word together. Matthew 24, and we'll start this morning in verse 15. These are the words of Jesus. He says this. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, 
those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And this is God's word this morning to Grace Community Church. Now last week we talked briefly about three different interpretive approaches to the Olivet Discourse. And and these are, you know, uh, within the bounds of orthodoxy. I mean, there's other stuff far out there that's not even, you know, legitimate. But these are family disagreements within the body of Christ of how we should interpret this prophecy of Jesus. And the first that we discussed last week was the preterist approach. And this approach does not understand Jesus to prophesy his second coming in Matthew 24. And so the preterist understands that everything in the Olivet Discourse is fulfilled in 70 AD. And then we have the futurist approach, which is the opposite of the preterist approach. And the the futurists understand that Jesus is prophesying the second coming in Matthew 24. And they conclude that none of the Olivet Discourse was fulfilled in 70 AD. You say, what's so big about 70 AD? We'll get there in just a minute. And finally, the blended approach takes a little bit of both of these. And this approach understands that Jesus is prophesying two things, both the destruction of the temple and his second coming in the Olivet Discourse. And so the blended approach understands that part of this prophecy is fulfilled in 70 AD and other portions of Matthew 24 are not fulfilled until the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so that's just a little bit of review. Let me give you, before we unpack this passage, uh, a little bit of the structure that I would propose that you should test, just like you test everything by the Word of God, a structure for this passage. And I think this will help clarify the view that we're going to be considering together this week and next, the blended approach, the blended view. And so let's work through this outline together. In verses 4 through 14, we covered this last week, Jesus prophesies the general signs that are going to reappear throughout the entire inner Advent period between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. Things like apostasy, things like persecution, things like war and famine and rumors of wars, things like evangelism to the ends of the earth. Jesus calls these the birth pains. And what we looked at last week is those, those are going to stretch uh, throughout the entire inter-Advent period. And then we come 
to the next paragraph division in the ESV, our text this morning, verses 15 through 28. That's an entire paragraph division in your ESV translation. And what I want you to notice is that we run into a real difficulty, okay? And I mean that as sincerely as I can say it, that there's a real difficulty in this paragraph. Let me explain it to you, okay? At the beginning of this paragraph, in verse 15, Jesus begins talking about something that is local to Jerusalem and that is historically fulfilled in the, in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Yet, by the time Jesus finishes this paragraph, in verse 27, Jesus is not talking about something local to Jerusalem. Jesus is talking about something universal. He tells us, he mentions his return, and he says that the whole created world is going to see it, not just Jerusalem. It's going to be like lightning flashing from the east to the west. Jesus is going to come publicly, visibly, and gloriously. And so somewhere in this paragraph, it starts local, it finishes universal. It starts talking about something that was historically fulfilled. It finishes talking about something that's not historically fulfilled yet. And so somewhere in this paragraph, a switch is made. Okay, And to be honest with you, I don't know exactly where to place this division. Okay, It could go in verse 30. It could go in verse 21. The switch could go in verse 22. And it could also go in verse 23. In other words, all three of those could be the hinge where Jesus stops talking about Jerusalem and starts talking about something else. Okay. Now, my best understanding of where that hinge happens is in verse 22. right? And here in this outline, I'm going to follow D.A. Carson, commentator D.A. Carson, and also a commentator named Leon Morris if you want to check these things out. For yourself. Now, I think there are good reasons for dividing this paragraph after verse 21 and before verse 22. And let me mention a few of these. Okay, this is really important to grasp the outline. Number one, in verse 22, we have a mention of those days. In those days. And there's a parallel in verse 29. Of the Olivet Discourse where Jesus says immediately after the tribulation of those days. Okay. And so part of what Jesus is prophesying in chapter 24 is his immediate return after those days are fulfilled. Okay. Which did not happen after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Jesus did not come visibly Publicly, globally, gl gloriously, in power, on clouds, and elect weren't gathered after 70 AD. That's future. Okay, And so because of that parallel, that those days of verse 29 have to be, I would argue, the same those days of verse 22. That's number one. Second reason for the division is that the scope in verse 22 seems broader than than verse 21 in the preceding verses. You say, what do you mean? Verse 22, he's not just talking any longer about those trapped in Jerusalem. 
He says, if those days hadn't been cut short, no flesh, no human being would be saved. And so we jump to universal language in verse 22. Reason number three for the division is the, the warning that follows verse 22 is a warning that Jesus has already sounded this trumpet already in Matthew 24. It's a warning about false Christ, the appearance of deceivers, the appearance of false prophets. And we've already located that warning as a general sign that reappears throughout the entire inter-advent period where he comes back to that same warning in the back half of this paragraph. He does it again, warns about false Christ. And then final reason for this division is verse 22 mentions the days will be cut short. And I believe verse 27 tells us how they will be cut short. They will be, those days will be cut short by the return of Jesus for the sake of his elect. Okay, And so with that division in place, I want us to, to walk through this outline very quickly. Verses 4 through 14 focus on the birth pains of the whole inter-advent period. Verses 15 through 21, if that division is right, Jesus is focusing on one particularly sharp birth pain, the destruction of the temple. And then in verses 20 through through 28, the scope broadens out again. And Jesus gives a warning that is applicable for the entire inter-advent period. And so the structure so far is this. Broad, narrow, broad, the end. Okay, If, if that is the right organization, we got the whole inter-advent period broad, narrowed down to the destruction of Jerusalem, back broad to the whole inter-advent period, and then the end with the glorious return of Christ. We are arguing for the blended view. And I think that this view helps us to account for both things in Matthew 24. It's able to account for a localized judgment upon Jerusalem. As well as a universal visible coming of the Son of Man. Alright, enough about structure. That's your outline. If you have any questions about that, we can talk about it for as long as you want to after we're done. Let's begin unpacking this passage together this morning by drawing our attention to what Jesus calls in verse 15, the abomination of desolation. He says this in verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation, and then he tells us this comes right out of the book of Daniel, spoken of. By the prophet Daniel. Now this phrase appears four times in Daniel. You can jot these down if they're not on your study guide. Daniel 8.13, Daniel 9.27, Daniel 11.31, and Daniel 12.11. Four times in, in these prophetic passages, we, we have some form of that phrase of the abomination of desolation. And Jesus tells us, that there's more to this phrase than what meets the eye because he says this, let the reader understand. In other words, this is something you're going to have to meditate on. This is something you're going to have to work at. There's, this is not easy peasy stuff to, to fit together. He says, let the reader understand. It becomes, as we read the prophecies of Daniel, 
I believe you're going to see that this abomination of desolation becomes a pattern of how God judges Israel, of how the, the, the judgment is triggered upon Israel is through the abomination of desolation. You can turn really quick to Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. You can get your eyes on that passage. And, and here Daniel prophesies that a ruler would come to Jerusalem with his army and profane the holy temple in Jerusalem. And he tells us several very specific things. He tells us that this ruler is going to take away the burnt offerings, the regular burnt offerings. And he's going to set something up in, the, in place of those, an abomination that makes that temple desolate. Okay. That's the prophecy in Daniel 11, verse 31. Now, most commentators on Daniel believe that these actions were fulfilled by, his, by a historical ruler, a king from ancient Greece named Antiochus. So, sorry, Anti, Antiochus, that's right. And, and they, they put forward this ancient Greek king as fulfilling Daniel's prophecy. Okay? He did exactly what Daniel said he would do. He, 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 he took Jerusalem. He sacked the city. He entered the temple. He took away the burnt offerings. And he set up an altar to the Greek god Zeus in God's temple and defiled the Jerusalem temple. He offered the abomination that makes desolate. And yet, Jesus gives this warning about 200 years after Antiochus. Okay? He's still talking, Jesus is still talking about the abomination of desolation. And he is giving his readers and his hearers a warning that when you see this, it's the trigger. It's time to flee the holy city, which means the abomination of of desolation that was committed by Antiochus, let the reader understand, Jesus says, it's just a foreshadowing of a greater abomination of desolation that Jesus is prophesying in Matthew 24. Now, lucky for us, okay, Luke wrote a gospel to the Gentiles specifically where he actually interprets, you know, all this stuff about Hebrew prophecy, Luke actually interprets it for his readers, and thank God he does, okay? And so let's read Luke's interpretation of the abomination of desolation. This is Luke 21, verse 20. Jesus says this, But when you see Jerusalem... Surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Aren't you thankful for that? You don't have to wonder. You don't have to listen to some weird YouTube channel on, on prophecy. Luke tells you what the abomination of desolation is. Okay, It's the same thing that happened with Antiochus. And, and, and Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse tells you it's when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, they're about to defile the holy temple. Okay, This is the event 
that is supposed to trigger the Jews that are dwelling in Jerusalem to flee the holy city, to flee to the mountains, the abomination of desolation. All right. And some of this may be new to you. And just hear it out and test it by the word of God and ask questions if you have any questions this morning. But I want to say this. This is where, in Matthew 24, this is where the strengths of the preterist view of the Olivet Discourse shine most brightly. Okay? The preterist reading, remember, is that this was historically fulfilled in 70 A.D., and so we'll start with asking a few questions. What judgment is Jesus talking about when he says flee to the mountains? Okay, There's a judgment coming upon Jerusalem. What judgment is that? And let's sharpen the question a little bit more. Was it the final judgment? Is Jesus warning those who dwell in Jerusalem to flee from the final judgment? And I think the clear answer is no for two reasons. Okay, Number one, the final judgment is a judgment that is rendered through the whole earth, not one city. Okay, This is a judgment that's coming upon one city. And then even more decisive than that, Jesus says this is a judgment that you can run from. The final judgment, friends, is not a judgment that you can run from. There's nowhere to hide. This judgment, Jesus says, if you want to escape this judgment, you don't have to be judged in the holy city. If you want to escape this judgment, Jesus says, get out of Jerusalem and flee to the mountains. So this is a localized judgment. And it's something prior to the final judgment. Right? Look at what Jesus says in verse 17 and 18, note the urgency of Jesus' language that he uses when he begins to stack the urgency upon this warning. In verse 17 and 18, he tells his, his hearers, his readers, that if you're on the housetop and you see this, this sign, this trigger, don't even go back inside. Don't go pack a lunch. Don't go grab your coat. Get out of there. Quickly, there's an urgency to it. Okay? And then look at what he says in verse 19 and 20. He tells them to pray that they would be spared from added difficulty as they flee the holy city and go to the mountains. And he says this in verse 19. He says, Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. What's he talking about there? All those things would make it even more difficult than it's already going to be. There's going to be an army gathering around the holy city in Jerusalem. It's going to be even harder if you're pregnant. It's going to be even harder if you're nursing children. It's going to be even harder to flee if you have harsh winter weather. And I think the hardest to understand here is pray that it might not be on the Sabbath. But once you think about it, it makes a little more sense that it's going to be harder to get the provisions you need on the Sabbath. Because you're going to be surrounded by a bunch of strict, Sabbatarian, unbelieving Jews. 
It's going to make the hostility between the Christians and the Jews even more than it already is. But because the Christians are going to be going past that prescribed Sabbath day journey. So it's going to make it even harder. Jesus says pray that you would be spared these things. That it wouldn't be harder than it's already going to be. Why the urgency? Why the warning? Look at verse 21. It begins with the word for. And that little preposition grounds things. It's the, it's the reason for. And the ground here of the urgent fleeing of Jerusalem in verse 21, the reason for the urgent flight, Jesus says that this will be the greatest tribulation that will ever be experienced. And I want you to hang with me this morning. That might be something you're scratching your head about. Wait a second. This is different. This is unfamiliar. Okay. Jesus says, let me read it again in verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. With these words, Jesus is prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem. And this prophecy was fulfilled in 70 A.D. History tells us that a Roman general named Titus, the son of the emperor, surrounded the holy city with five Roman legions and he seized Jerusalem for five months. And we're going to talk this morning that the suffering that accompanied that siege was horrific. Okay? Horrific. Now, to understand what Jesus says about this tribulation, you need to understand the uniqueness of this judgment that Jesus is prophesying on Jerusalem. And for this, you're going to have to reach back and grab the context of the last several weeks we've been in Matthew 21, 22, 23, and now 24. How can it be said that the 70 AD tribulation was the greatest tribulation that ever was? Or, Jesus says, or ever will be. How could that possibly be true? And there's several things to say here. We could qualify this in several ways. I think it's true that this is the worst judgment that will ever fall upon Israel. And I think Jesus is saying here, this is the worst earthly temporal judgment that ever will be. Okay? Is that right? If it is... You need to understand the uniqueness of this generation. And once you understand the uniqueness of this generation, then I think you're going to see the fittingness of the judgment that falls upon this generation. You say, what do you mean? There's a unique, irrepeatable guilt that this generation is guilty of, and I want you to see it. Okay? You need to understand, not only did they reject the Messiah, this is the generation that crucified the Messiah. This is the generation that sealed their fate by shedding the blood of the Son of God. And Jesus called them on it. You remember back in Matthew 23, 
Jesus pronounced them as uniquely guilty. He said this in Matthew 23, 35. He said, so that on you may come all the righteous blood on the earth. From the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. And then Jesus says this. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. The generation that shed the blood of the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe what Jesus is teaching here is because they are uniquely guilty, they are uniquely punished. Because they're uniquely guilty, they are uniquely punished. It's what, what Jesus is prophesying here is not less than, but more than God's judgments that were given in the Old Testament. You say, what do you mean? God judged other nations in the Old Testament. There are woe oracles, judgment oracles in almost all the prophets. But the thing that's different that Jesus is prophesying, this is a covenant curse. Okay? When God judged Babylon, it was bad. But when God judges Israel, he's bringing a covenant curse upon his people. It's unique. It's distinctive. Jesus prophesied this. He prefigured it when he cursed the fig tree in Matthew 23. And he said, may no fruit ever come from you again. What is that all about? Jesus is not angry at trees. Okay? He's not hungry because he couldn't have figs. This is a prophecy, a prefiguring of the judgment that was going to come upon Israel. So Jesus prophesies this by cursing the fig tree. And then he prophesies it again when he says, your house is going to be desolate. There's going to be nothing left. Prophesies the destruction of the temple. He says stone by stone, torn down, not one stone left upon the other. And so not only did Jesus curse this generation, I want you to also understand they cursed themselves. Okay? They cursed themselves. While standing before Pilate, Pilate actually offered to release Jesus, the king of the Jews, to the Jews. And he made an offer to him that he would release them. And here's the response of all the people who stood before Pilate. They invoked a curse upon themselves. Matthew 27 verse 25 says this. All the people answered, listen, his blood be upon us and our children. It's the worst thing that you could ever ask for in the history of the world. That the guilt, the blood guilt, the murder guilt... Of the Son of God would be counted to you and to your children. That's the guilt, the unique guilt of this generation. Now we, say, we, can, we can say this. Jesus does say in Matthew 23, he's willing to gather them. He's willing to gather them like a hen gathers the young under their wings. But Jesus says they're the ones that are not willing. They have rejected their Messiah. And so Jesus is prophesying the covenant curse that will come upon the people of God, national Israel. Now, I keep using that phrase covenant curse. And where that comes from is the book of Deuteronomy, that when God gives the covenant, the old covenant to Israel, 
that covenant comes with blessings and, you guessed it, with curses if they did not obey, if they failed to keep God's covenant. What you're going to see this morning is this siege upon Jerusalem in 70 AD is a vivid description of the fulfillment of God's curse, Deuteronomy chapter 28 curse falling upon the people of God. And so I want us to turn there together this morning and remind ourselves of what God said in Deuteronomy 28 that had been sitting dormant for hundreds and thousands of years of Jewish history. And what Jesus is prophesying is is that these things are going to come with a final ultimate fulfillment. The curse is going to fall upon Israel. Let's read it together. Deuteronomy 28, we'll we'll read a good bit of this chapter, beginning in verse 15. We have general warnings first, and then we'll get into some very specific warnings later in Deuteronomy 28. Moses says this, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all of His commandments, And his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall your basket, shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. In other words, cursed, top to bottom, God says, if you break his covenant. Jump down to verse 25, sorry, verse 45 of Deuteronomy 28, and listen closely to what God promises. He says, all these curses shall come upon you. And pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore... You shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the ends of the earth, swooping down like the eagle. A nation whose language you do not understand. A hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It shall not leave you grain or wine or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. Verse 52. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land 
And they shall besiege you and all your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left, so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing else left in the siege and in the, in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns." The most tender and refined woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she is so delicate and tender will begrudge to the husband she embraces to her son and her daughter, her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears because lacking everything she will eat them secretly in the siege and in, in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns. One last verse here, verse, 20, verse 68. And the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promise you would never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves. But there will be no buyer. Now, one of the things that you'll notice as a follower of Jesus is that the warnings of the Word of God have a very long history of being ignored. In other words, God sounds forth the trumpet blast and the warning, and unbelieving, unregenerate men and women have a strong tendency to hit the snooze button and not believe what God says. One of the things that I hope you're going to be reminded of this morning is that God's word does not fail. God's word never will fail. God's word is absolutely certain. Heaven will pass away. Earth will pass away. But everything that God has ever said will be fulfilled. And we need to take heed to the warnings all throughout God's word. Because God will have the last word. His word will be fulfilled. What God promised, God fulfilled. D.A. Carson says this about the 70 A.D. judgment. He says, there have been greater numbers of death, such as the six million Jews who died in the Nazi death camps, but he says, never has so high a percentage of a great city's population been exterminated and enslaved as during the fall of Jerusalem. And perhaps that is how we should understand verse, 20, verse 21 when it says the greatest tribulation that ever was. Not necessarily in the terms of scope of the number of people dies, but the concentration of the suffering, the density, how packed it is in, in one city and in a short period of time. And if this is the right way of reading verse 21, we can understand that this punishment that's described in Deuteronomy 28 is uniquely fitting for the unique guilt of this generation. 
the generation that Jesus indicts. The suffering in A.D. 70 was awful and horrific. And we have a firsthand historical account of the whole thing. There was a Jewish historian named Josephus. He was actually a Jewish general that was captured by the Romans in one of the other cities before the Romans got to Jerusalem. They took him captive and he became an eyewitness to the entire siege of Jerusalem all five months. And in his works, the works of Josephus, there are over a hundred pages describing the horror and the suffering of the Jewish people during this invasion, during this siege of the holy city. I'll mention several things here. All this comes from Josephus. He tells us that before the Romans even arrived in Jerusalem, that there was a civil war in the holy city, the zealots and another faction, and they were already killing each other. And one of those factions... In this civil, you know, civil uh, discord, the civil war, they burned all the grain in Jerusalem. Before the Romans even got there, there was no food in the city. And it set the stage when the Romans locked down the siege that there was going to be this intense period of starvation. And that's exactly what Titus did. He locked down the city, no food in, no food out, and the Jews were left there to starve. There were Jewish soldiers that would go out of the gates to make raids on the Roman soldiers, and Josephus tells us that Titus had them crucified up to 500 a day and then planted them like trees in front of the gates of Jerusalem. Until they ran out of wood to crucify the Jewish soldiers. At which point they just piled the bodies up beside the city walls. When everything was finished and the siege was over, Josephus tells us that 1.1 million Jews died in this siege in a period of nine, five months. He tells us that the worst killer in this siege was famine. And that's exactly what God promised in the curse of the law. That they would starve. That they would lack everything. That they would be driven to even cannibalize their children. It's exactly what God promised. It's exactly what happened in 70 AD. As the, as the city began to starve... Josephus says that men were turned into madmen. Inside the walls of the city, the city became uh, full of dead bodies of those who were starving to death every single day. He tells vivid descriptions of as the famine grew more and more severe that the strong in the city would manipulate, would use their power to take all the food from the weak in the city and that all the houses would be ransacked multiple times a day and that the weak in the city would be threatened, their life would be threatened for hiding food, even a morsel of bread. Josephus says if you didn't look physically frail enough, it was automatically supposed that you were hiding food and the Jewish soldiers would slaughter you 
Even if you didn't starve to death, you would be killed by your own people. I'll quote Josephus at length here. Josephus says, Famine is truly the worst form of suffering. And it is destructive to nothing so much as to decency. Women grab food from the very mouths of their husbands. Children from the very mouths of their fathers. And the most horrid of all, mothers from the very mouths of their babies. They had no scruples any longer of depriving them the last morsel that might have kept them alive. He says again, the best of friends wrestled each other to the death for, the, for even a morsel of bread. Others staggered around the city with their mouths open like wild dogs, beating on doors like drunken men and breaking into houses two or three times in a single hour in their hopeless state. They put their teeth into everything, swallowing things that even the filthiest of animals would not touch. Finally, they devoured even their own belts, their shoes, and even the leather that they stripped from their shields. God promised in Deuteronomy 28 that they would be driven to such famine that they would cannibalize their children. And that's exactly what happened. Josephus tells an account of a woman in Jerusalem named Mary who had all of her food stolen. And she gave way to her hunger, defied nature, and she took the life of her infant son, roasted him in the fire, and then ate her own son before the Jewish soldiers. Others, in desperation, sold everything they had for a small amount of gold because there was no food left in the city. They liquidated all their possessions for a small amount of gold and then they swallowed those gold pieces in order to try to sneak past the Jewish guards that were trying to keep everybody in the city. Then they would go out to the Romans and they would defecate and pick through their dung to grab the golden nuggets in order to offer the Romans money to try to buy some food and not starve to death. And if that's bad enough, once the Romans found out what was happening, that there were people crawling out of the city walls with gold in their stomach, they started disemboweling people while they were still alive to get their hands on the gold. And Josephus says in one night alone, 2,000 Jews were dissected in this way by the Romans. Horrific suffering. Josephus says that bodies were piled up outside the city walls. And that the stench was so great that it was absolutely unforgettable. Five months into the siege, the Romans finally entered the city walls and stormed the temple. And they slaughtered thousands of Jews who made their last stand in God's temple. The Romans killed thousands in the temple of Jerusalem and then... They set the temple on fire and burn it to the ground. It was just like Jesus said. Not one stone will be left upon another. It was just like Jesus said. And then finally in Deuteronomy 28, God promised that he would bring Israel back in ships to Egypt. Egypt. 
and that they would be slaves again in the land where God redeemed them. And this is exactly what happened. The general Titus spared some Israelites and sent them back into slavery in Egypt where they were forced to work in the Roman mines as slaves in Egypt. Again, brothers and sisters, exactly like God said. Look how dangerous it is to despise the word of the Lord. Hundreds of years and even millennia had passed since those prophecies were uttered through Moses, the curse of the law. And then all of a sudden, God's word breaks into fulfillment. And Jesus says, these things are happening in this generation. Our Lord prophesied in vivid detail this judgment. This was the worst earthly judgment that will ever fall upon the Jewish nation. Why? Because this was the curse of the covenant. And you might be wondering this. What about the Christians who dwelt in Jerusalem? Because we know there was a church there. We know that from the book of Acts. That this is where Pentecost happened. And the spirit of God was poured out. And the people of God were gathered together by the thousands. What happened to the Christians in the holy city? Well, Eusebius, a church father, and other church fathers relate to us the tradition that the Christians in Jerusalem did exactly, listen, exactly what Jesus said. They saw that triggered the abomination of desolation, and they fled to the mountains. They did exactly what Jesus said. Now, for you to understand, this is counterintuitive. Because as the Romans are coming into Israel, the strongest fortress in the whole nation was Jerusalem. And thousands were packing in the holy city to make their last stand against the Romans. It was the safest place to be in Israel, according to common knowledge. But the Christians did exactly the opposite. When the Romans surrounded Jerusalem, the Christians remembered the words of Jesus. And they fled to a place called Pella. In the wilderness. And over a million Jews died in the siege upon Jerusalem. But the Christians at Pella were saved from the 70 AD judgment upon Israel by the Romans. Just like Jesus said. They came and, the, and they surrounded the holy city with armies. They, they, they caused the house of God to be desolate. But they fled to the mountains. And they were spared. Just like Jesus said. And so I want us to close this morning with the words of Jesus in verse 25. Look at what he says, brothers and sisters, in verse 25. He says this. See, I have told you beforehand. And I want to remind us, that's what kind of prophet Jesus is. Okay? Okay? And what I mean by that is we don't just have prophecies of Jesus about the last days that we take by faith because Jesus never lies, though we, that, that's true enough. We also have other prophecies that Jesus made that were historically fulfilled in vivid detail. In other words, in the Olivet Discourse, we have the prophecy of Jesus 
that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in this very specific way. And then, brothers and sisters, what happens? It happens exactly as Jesus said. In other words, he's not like uh, so many so-called prophets who just announce things and then they never happen. The words of Jesus are absolutely certain. They're absolutely certain. And, and, and he even says this. They're more certain than heaven and earth. Look at verse 35. Jesus says this. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's how certain, that's how strong a foundation we have when we trust in the words of Jesus Christ. And that's also a warning to us. To those who spurn the words of Jesus, they're coming. They're, they will be fulfilled. In other words, the words of Jesus are more certain than the skies that are the stars that are burning in the sky and your feet standing upon planet Earth. Those things can pass away, but the words of Jesus will never pass away. He says in verse 25, see, I have told you beforehand. I've told you beforehand. And we have this strong confidence, this building confidence. If these things were so, then what about the other things that Jesus says? We have even more confidence that they're going to be so. It's going to be exactly like Jesus says. You mean like what kind of things? Like when Jesus says in his word, surely I am coming quickly. Surely I'm standing at the door when he tells us, brothers and sisters, that that the new heavens and the new earth are coming where righteousness dwells, where he tells us that there's a day fixed where he's going to judge the world in righteousness. Those are fixed, certain realities. Why? Because Jesus spoke them and his word, it'll, it'll never be shattered. It'll never not come true. And so Jesus is presented to us in Matthew 24 as the prophet of all prophets. The prophet par excellence. The prophet of all prophets. Hebrews actually gets at this in this way. It says, in times past, God spoke to us in many times in many ways by the prophets. But then, but then Hebrews says, but in these last days, brothers and sisters, God's got a final word for humanity. In these last days, God has spoken to us through or in his son, the Lord Jesus. He is the word of God. God's final message to planet earth, to all creation, is the declaration of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And the great question for every one of us here this morning is how will you respond to that message? How will you respond to the words of Jesus Christ, the infallible words of Jesus Christ? What should you do? Wisdom, the response of wisdom is that you hear the words of Jesus, that you understand what he says, and then you stake your entire life on those words. Why? Because they're more certain than planet Earth. They're more certain than the stars that are burning in the universe. You should stake your entire life on the words of Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about this next week. But there are blasphemers that have long pointed to Matthew 24 as proof that Jesus was not the Messiah. 
And the argument runs like this. Jesus said he was coming back within this generation. He didn't come back with this generation. Therefore, Jesus is wrong. Therefore, Jesus is not the Messiah. And we'll unpack that argument next week. But I just want you to observe it's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. Jesus prophesied a historical judgment upon Jerusalem within this generation And it happened, listen, exactly like he said. It's the exact opposite. The Olivet Discourse doesn't disprove that Jesus is the Messiah. It proves that he is. He declares the end from the beginning. And he says this in verse 25. See, I have told you beforehand. And so what is the right response to the words of Jesus? We should heed them. We should believe them. And we should Stake our whole lives upon the word of Christ. There's a phrase that you might have grown up, you might have grown up hearing. Uh, you know, we're going to do this thing or bust. You know, it's this thing or bust. Well, for the Christian, it's God's word or bust. In other words, if you were to answer the question, what if God's word is not true? As a Christian, you ought to have no plan B. I got nothing else here. I'm all in on God's word. I'm totally abandoned, totally trusting in God's word. And if God's word's not true, I got nothing else. I'm all in here. This is the response of wisdom. And we can be certain that just like the words of Jesus about the abomination of desolation were absolutely certain and perfectly fulfilled everything that Jesus has spoken about judgment and about salvation will be fulfilled exactly like he said on time as planned nothing missing and Jesus says this verse 25 see I tell you beforehand so we're going to pray now and let's ask God for grace as disciples of Jesus as a local church to trust in the word of God like we're planting our feet on Mount Everest on a stone that can never be moved. More grace to lean even harder into the never failing words of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we do ask for your help that you would grant us understanding and light. God, I pray for every disciple here today that you would help us to search your scriptures and to test these things to see if they were so. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be our teacher by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We marvel at your word, Lord. God, thank you for the word of promise that you've given us in the gospel. And we ask for grace that you would help us to cling to it with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.